when he became prime minister, he, he used to come down to Melbourne a lot and, and he would call me often at 10 o'clock at night and say, Hugh, I'm, I'm flying in, you know, let's grab a quick coffee and talk about foreign policy. So I would drive quickly as I could into the city. When he landed, we would spend, you know, two hours you know, talking about foreign affairs. And then I'd have to wake up the next morning and try to go to university. So it's like, <laughs> it just became, it became this pattern, you know, and I, and I just believe in life that mentorship at the end of the day is about friendship. You look up to people, I look up to a whole lot of people still to this day. And if you see the qualities of people that you aspire to have in your own life, there's nothing like mentorship to be the best version of yourself. Australia's Prime Minister at the time, Kevin Rudd, is not alone. Hugh Evans has drawn the attention of numerous world leaders, celebrities, change agents, and all types of people for years, joining him to pursue his passion, eradicating extreme poverty. This is Before the Cheering Started. I'm Bud Mishkin. It's a podcast all about the journey to success, the obstacles overcome, the doubt, the early years, the before the cheering started years. In Hugh Evans' case, the cheering is the international acclaim that he and his nonprofit Global Citizen have garnered, raising millions to fight extreme poverty, primarily through the annual Global Citizen Festival concert in New York City in late September, this year celebrating its 10th anniversary. You can't simply buy a ticket to the festival. You have to earn your way in, with actions taken being part of the Global Citizen's fight. As a young man, Hugh Evans was shaped by trips he took and poverty he witnessed in the Philippines, India, and South Africa. But he was also shaped by lessons learned at home, growing up in Melbourne, Australia. Hugh, you have described yourself in previous interviews, and also I believe in your TED Talk, as a why kid growing up. So, that begs the question, why do you think you were a why kid growing up in Australia? Oh, that's that's an interesting question, but I think that um, my inquisitive nature was probably fueled by the fact that I, I grew up in in just a a middle class um, suburb of Melbourne. Nothing nothing special, just just really straightforward leafy streets in, in Melbourne, Australia, and. The thing about Melbourne is is that it's um, both stunningly beautiful, as all parts of Australia are in my, my view, but it's also much quieter than, say, a city like New York, right? Um, there's a lot more time to contemplate, a lot more time to explore nature. Like I used to love bodyboarding and body surfing and, and um, I used to love cross-country running all around the streets. And so I had just all this energy and time just to think about the world and, and, and my place in it. And, and so, um, and at the same time, I, I was also, as from a young age, fascinated by public life and, and politics. So I was mentored when I was much younger by Kevin Rudd, who was the former Prime Minister of Australia, and then very kindly the other, for, other former Prime Minister of Australia, Julie Gillard, um, also um, very kindly agreed to share her wisdom and, and mentor me um, to understand more about public life and, and, and the nature of global development, global public policy. And so I, I kind of 
was merging this passion for the eradication of poverty, which happened when I was really young, when I was 13 years old, with kind of a broader understanding of how, how does one make a meaningful contribution to that because it, the issue itself just seems sometimes so enormous. And so I think that, that um, I think that it's probably a combination of where I grew up, the, the people I had in my life that mentored me and then my, my passions from a young age. Yeah. You m mentioned getting mentored by a former prime minister. Uh, at that moment, is there a, a sense of not everybody gets mentorship from former prime ministers obviously they saw something in you well it was it was the way the story kevin rudd describes it is at the time i i was 19 years old i had just returned from south africa working at a um at an orphanage in kwazulu natal um in the province the province of kwazulu natal in a place called the valley of a thousand hills it was the epicenter of the hiv aids pandemic back in 2003 when i lived there and when I came back to Australia, um, the government very kindly gave me this award called Young Australian of the Year um, for the work that we'd been doing to start um, the first charity that I founded called the Oak Tree Foundation. And when they invited us up to Canberra, our nation's capital, to receive this award, I knocked on the door of Kevin Rudd's office. At that stage, he was the shadow foreign affairs minister. So he wasn't in office and but I, I could see he was extremely articulate in the way that he presented himself, and I always found that his the way he communicated, particularly foreign policy, was extremely clear to me. And so I knocked on his door, and he jokingly says that I barged in and asked him <laughs> if, if I would if he would mentor me, and I and he said yes. And so um, sure enough, he he used to you know when when he became prime minister, he he used to come down to Melbourne a lot, and and he would call me often at 10 o'clock at night and say, Hugh, I'm, I'm flying in, you know, let's grab a quick coffee and talk about foreign policy. So I would drive quickly as I could into the city. When he landed, we would spend, you know, two hours, you know, talking about foreign affairs. And then, and then I'd have to wake up the next morning and try to go to university. So it's like, <laughs> it just became, it became this, uh, this pattern and, um, you know, and I, and I just believe in life that mentorship at the end of the day is about friendship. You know, you you look you look up to people. I look up to a whole lot of people still to this day. And if you if you see the qualities of people that you aspire to have in your own life, there's nothing like mentorship to try to learn. You know, the the best to be the best version of yourself. I guess I love that story about like you were hanging out with the prime minister last night, and what did you guys do last night? Oh, we. Went to get a beer, maybe, or oh, what did you do? Oh, nothing. I was hanging out with the prime minister. Uh, years before that, growing up in the home that you grew up in, is there a spoken or unspoken sense of we're here for a reason? We're here to make a difference, to leave the world a better place. And is that, again, a, a spoken piece of advice to you from your folks or unspoken? And if so, at, at what age? A little bit of both. Um the the spoken part was that one day I remember distinctly, I think I was about 18 years old, my dad sat me down and he, he asked me, what type of change do I want to see in the world? He said, do I want to impact one person profoundly or do I want to try to impact a system that can be changed? I think was the way he framed the question because he was 
you know, he he was himself an engineer. He was a, a doc. He's a doctor of hydrogeology, which means he's a groundwater management specialist, which is more relevant now that there's climate change now than ever. But 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 um, he used to, he said, you know, if if you want to impact one person profoundly, then maybe consider a medical profession, maybe be a doctor. But he said, if you want to impact public policy, then maybe you should train as a lawyer or as an economist. And so I decided that that was the path I wanted to go down. And so I, I, I studied law, you know, qualified and then, and then went on to study public policy and international relations as my master's, um, because that's really the path that I wanted to pursue in my career. Um, my, but I think what I saw implicitly in both of my parents was firstly a commitment to hard work. They both worked so damn hard their whole life. I, I love their work ethic, both of them. My mum and my dad were extraordinarily hard and still are extraordinarily hard workers. My mum is also an entrepreneur, which I loved. Um, she, My grandfather founded our family business, which was an antique jewellery business. Again, completely different to anything that I do, but 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 she one by one purchased the business from her brothers and now runs it herself. And I saw in her this extraordinary entrepreneurial ability. Um, and I, I've always believed that when you're working in our area of, of work, which is to try to change the world, you need to marry a work ethic with, with a clear mission, with a sense of social entrepreneurship. I, you have to be willing to take calculated risks all the time. Or otherwise, you'll never grow to the uh, to the strength that you, as an organization, need to be to create more profound change in the world. And so that's that was definitely from my mom and from my grandfather, Kurt. Um, I, I guess I, I found that very much from them, and 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 from my dad. You know, he <laughs> we always joke. He always used to talk to us about salinity in water and no one knows about solidity, but it's basically completely related to climate change. And now everyone in the future will be talking about salinity because groundwater management makes up 80% of the water that we drink and, um, and, and, and it will become the topic of conversation for everyone over the next 20, 30 years as the world continues to change. You've also talked about needing to bring what you've called an academic discipline about the way that you do your work so that it can stand the test of time. Again, is that something that you learn early on or is that something you just learn by doing once you create Global Citizen and once you start doing the festival? We always felt from day one that we were trying to mainstream public policy rather than trying to be about the mainstream, if that makes sense. So, so, so the festival is, is a tactic. The goal is to bring public policy discourse into the forefront. And mm-hmm. so, so you know, we care about the eradication of extreme poverty, which means that we care about, you know, the impacts of climate change. We care about the empowerment of girls and women. We care about food security. We care about water and sanitation. We care about global health and health systems. All of these are academic disciplines that then have an application in public policy and in social change, right? And so we see that the festival becomes this incredible vehicle to bring those about. What I saw with my family and then and then also saw in, in the inspiration that led to Global Citizen, because when we first started, we were called the Global Poverty Project because um, our co-founders and I went to see Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth 
at a local um we were at like the Baldwin uh, cinema. And I remember I spoke with Simon Moss, our co-founder right after this about 13, 14 years ago now. And, and uh, I said, yeah, we, you know, no one's ever done the same thing that Al Gore did for climate change, for extreme poverty. You know, I'm, I admire what Jeff Sachs has done when he, you know, on a very much on an academic level, driving strong public policy, but no one's mainstreamed it to the extent that it needs to be mainstreamed. And so we said, okay, let's let's make that our job. And so we started with this presentation called 1.4 Billion Reasons, which was a presentation, a slideshow that we gave about the 1.4 billion people living in extreme poverty. And we, we took that all around the world. And Hugh Jackman very kindly agreed to voice the intro, which helped it get more coverage. I remember we did our first presentation in New York in his living room, and he brought along a whole bunch of his friends and that really helped. But the idea for the festival came a year later when when we what had happened was several years earlier, the G20 was coming through Melbourne, Australia, and me and my mate, Dan, we had this idea to run this small concert called the Make Poverty History Concert, inspired by the Make Poverty History movement. And all of a sudden, it exploded one day when we got a phone call from Bono and Pearl Jam, who asked if they could headline our show. So how did... How does one respond when they get a phone call from, first of all, how does that happen? Do you just pick up your phone and, hi, it's Bono? Oh, it's never, it never has their number. It's always a, it's always a silent number. So, so you just got to pick up the phone. And then um, I thought it was a prank call. Honestly, I thought one of my friends was joking. And so <laughs> I was like, yeah, sure. You can headline, you can headline our, our concert in Melbourne. Um, and sure enough, it, it wasn't a prank call and they, came on first onto our bill and sang Rockin' in the Free World by Neil Young. Um, and, you know, the amazing thing about what happened the next day is that a million Australians signed on to our campaign. And, you know, we only had 20 million people in Australia. So having so many people sign on gave us this amazing platform to convince the government they had to respond. And so we... It was Kevin Rudd who was about to become prime minister. And on our, on our stage, he made this pledge that if he was elected, he would double foreign aid, an additional $6.2 billion for the world's poor. And sure enough, he kept his commitment. Um, we saw the largest foreign aid increase in Australia's history off the back of the campaign. And th- a few days later, I got a call from the United Nations here in New York and Dr. Uh, Salil Shetty, who was the head of the UN um, Millennium campaign called and said he wanted to help us take this all around the world. And, and we didn't know what that meant at that stage. Like, what does it mean to go all around the world? We just knew after watching an Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth, we like, okay, we want to do the same thing, but for but for the for, for, for sustainable development, for the eradication of poverty. Let's let's build a worldwide movement. And um, in those early days, it all seems both possible and impossible, which is part of the beauty of it. This is Before the Cheering Started. I'm Bud Mishkin. Long before the Bonos of the world would call him on a regular basis and, inspired by his passion, volunteer to perform at concerts to raise money to eradicate extreme poverty, Hugh Evans was going to school in Melbourne. But he was clearly primed to try to make a difference with his life. Witness something in Australia called the 40-hour famine. So in in Australia... um the 40-hour famine is 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 very very mainstream. Everyone knows about it. Um, okay, it's 
one of those things because because the biggest charity in Australia, like kind of maybe the equivalent of maybe UNICEF or the Red Cross here in the US, is called World Vision. Um, and the charity there, they encourage kids to go without food for forty hours to raise money for kids in the developing world. And when I was twelve or thirteen in my first year of high school. I was just an eager beaver and I put up my hand and I said, okay, I'm going to raise as much money as I can. And sure enough, we, we, we raised, uh, I, I knocked on every door in my neighborhood, asked everyone I possibly could, and we raised more money than, than any school in, in the country. And so um, World Vision sent me to the Philippines to see their work firsthand. Um, and that was the, the most profound life-changing experience for me ever in that, in the Philippines, after being there for about a month, I met um, a young boy. His name is Sunny Boy. We were both 14 years old. He lived on a slum built on a rubbish dump in the center of Manila called Smoky Mountain. His life revolved around scavenging. And so every day he'd run after the garbage trucks and try to get bits of scrap metal, piece of food and things so that he could recycle. And that night... World Vision placed me in his care. And when it came time to go to sleep, instead of going to a bedroom or anything, we just lay down on a concrete slab the size of half of my bedroom with myself and Sonny Boy and his whole family, seven of us in this long line, with the smell of rubbish because we were lying on this garbage dump and cockroaches crawling all around us. And, and I didn't sleep at all that night. I just lay awake thinking to myself, it really is pure chance that I was born where I was born and he was born into extreme poverty. And I still believe that to be true today. I think the lottery of life is, um, both, is the most unfair reality on the planet. Um, and you don't, you know, Peter Parker, a Spider-Man always says with great opportunity comes great responsibility or some, some variation of, of that. And I think that right. Um, Warren Buffett says the same thing. He he talks about the ovarian lottery in the terms of terms of we don't deserve to be born where we're born. None of us deserve the lottery of our life. And while we like to think, and this is this is the great um, paradox, while we like to think it's hard work and determination that got us to where we are, the actual economic reality is it's in large part driven by the opportunities we're afforded, the education we're given. The, 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 the geography that we're based in, the healthcare systems we're surrounded with, and, the, edu- and the, 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 the work environment that creates the sort of opportunities we can therefore create. So we do not have a monopoly on hard work here in the United States. Right. People in the Philippines or in sub-Saharan Africa work just as hard, if not harder, but the economic circumstances afforded to them are just not the same. And so we have no moral righteousness to be able to say, okay, therefore I'm entitled to the wealth that I have. No, 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 no. It's just not true. You know, we here by the grace of God go all of us. You have the story about Sonny Boy is an incredibly compelling story. Uh, you have told it. Uh, throughout the course of the the life of Global Citizen, and rightfully so. I'm curious if your thoughts about that period of your life through the years have changed in any way. 
I mean, the, the immediate experience was profound and immediate. I would I would say, and 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 changed me immediately. I'd say that. That said, I didn't know how to operationalize that passion in my life at mm. that stage. I didn't know how to turn that sense of injustice that I saw and felt into anything tangible. So it wasn't until many years later. In fact, the irony is at the time I just thought, okay, maybe one day I should be the CEO of World Vision because that's the only charity that I knew. <laughs> and so I was like, <laughs> that was kind of my my 12-year-old self thinking if that, that that probably is the way to go. But um but I think that um I'm still in touch with Sonny Boy. You know, he messaged me last night on on um on uh Facebook Messenger because that's how he how he messages me. And he uh you know this is a, an example, you know, he, he he sent me this message last night saying brother someone came here to our place to interview me about what we're experiencing here the place where we will live he is a member of young focus that's the charity that that helps him and his his family so they can know our life here thank you brother you did not disappoint me with your help and your family's help thank you brother i can't let you go um may god bless you and then he keeps talking about what what he needs in life and i and i think what i've what i've seen time and time again with sunny boy who is an amazing man but also still still experiencing the the challenges of extreme poverty is that human development is really hard like let's say you just grant someone the jackpot the lottery of life you know in the context of an environment that's extremely poor all of your relatives are going to want to have that money immediately all of your friends everyone so no matter how much money you give you have to look at the context in which someone lives and for sunny boy he lives in in he he was loca- relocated from manila to Cerveti, which is a community outside of of um manila because basically the government was trying to redevelop the area of smoky mountain where he was living and but there's no work in that area particularly not during covid because he, we 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 bought him a rickshaw so that he could generate his own income because you know everyone likes the adage teach a man to fish right it's mm. it's such a cliche but how can you fish if if there's no economy to operate within and i think that's the the complexity of human development in that you have to actually lift up an entire economy you have to change the systems that keep people poor or even any intervention you give to an individual will be a form of a bandaid that only ever lasts let's call it for 10 15 years which might seem like a long time horizon but unless you're addressing the broader economic con- construct in which someone is operating health education water and sanitation you know their economic environment everything will feel like a bandaid no matter how much money you give when you came home from that experience in the philippines uh is it tough to go through something like that something life changing and then try to explain it to your friends and try to explain it to your family or did you just kind of resort to the you, you don't understand what i've seen what i've been through or did they understand the the hardest time was returning from india when i was 15 years old i i went to live in india on a scholarship in the himalayan mountains and because that was an extended period of time many many months over there 
and with no like this is before the age of cell phones right i had no real contact with my family much except for the occasional terrible phone call that would often cut out when i got back i found that really shocking um i found that very hard to adjust for a while um i was there in 1999 into into the year 2000 because i remember i had the the turn of the millennium in kathmandu um in Nepal and I'd spent months prior in Bangladesh and then prior to that in India. And I came back and I found it extremely hard to readjust. What was the hard part of it? I couldn't explain who I'd become. I couldn't explain. I went, I went to India very much as a self-conscious 15 year old kid. And I came back with the realization that two thirds of the world live in extreme poverty and that the only way we're going to address this is through changing the systems. And I also realized this, this new kind of self-revelation for me as a human being. I, I remember one day I was standing at the top of the Himalayan mountains at the end of my time there. And I thought, wow, you know, like I did, I did this. I, I lived here without my parents, without my family for such a long period of time now. I felt far more confident about, about my ability to make a contribution to the world than I did prior. Prior to that, I, I I think I doubted myself a lot. After that, I thought, okay, what have I got to lose? You know, we're we're I've 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 survived India. I've witnessed some horrible things. Like I I won't go into it in today's interview, but it was really freaking hard sometimes. There, really hard. Um, and and I came out the other end, and I was like, okay, if I can do this, let's let's do it. I I just felt this sense of kind of got to get at it. You told me once that you saw experiences there that year where you saw life is a lot more fragile than you would have liked to have to admit. That 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 was it, but That's pretty I, weighty uh, that's pretty weighty stuff for a 15-16 year old. Oh yeah, no I I uh Yeah, I I don't like talking about life and death too much, but I saw a lot of death. I um I, I saw a lot of just how fragile life is. Like, um, there was one day, uh, a man literally died in our arms and it was just full on, like no other way I can describe it. It was full on. The journey to global citizen and global recognition has been filled with more than a few happy, I can't believe I'm here moments as well. What is it like having uh, a time with the queen? And time to <laughs> again, most of us will likely not have that experience. How old were you, and how did it come about? With the Queen, um, I was studying at Cambridge, and this was this was a really cool experience. Um, one of my idols um, was the great William Wilberforce, who. Um, in the 1800s was responsible for both the abolition of the slave trade um, in, in the UK alongside, you know, William Pitt and others. And, and he also established the RSPCA, which is, you know, in America, here's the ASPCA, you know, responsible for the protection of animals. He kind of held these two ideals, both protection of humanity and animals in high esteem. And he, he drove both of those agendas so brilliantly in his life. And that song, Amazing Grace, that everyone knows was actually written by his pastor. 
Um, not many people know that, but he, he went to Cambridge and I was at Cambridge at the time and, and, and I, uh, the Commonwealth Day celebrations were happening and they, the head of the Commonwealth Foundation asked if I would go to Westminster Abbey and, and speak about my passion for the eradication of poverty. Global Citizen, which was called the Global Poverty Project, was just getting started then. And they said, talk about Global Poverty Project at Westminster Abbey and the Queen will be there. And I was like, okay, okay, that's what I'm going to do then. And so we went and there were <laughs> thousands, of, thousands of people. And then afterwards, um, the, the, Her Majesty kindly met with us all and um, you know, shook our hand and, and spoke to us. And, and she was just really, really kind. Um, and uh, I had the privilege of meeting her on a couple of occasions while I was living in the UK. Um, the best thing that happened through getting to know her and her private secretary was the issue of polio eradication. We were able to, because she was hosting the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting in 2011. At that stage, Global Citizen was really getting going. And so we asked her if she would allow us to put the issue of polio eradication on the agenda for the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting. And she said she, she'd love to because it was one of the only major communicable diseases that was still endemic in Commonwealth countries. But she said, ask Julia Gillard, who is the, at that stage was the Prime Minister of Australia. And so we asked Prime Minister Gillard and she said to us, well, do young people care about polio? It's mostly eradicated. And we said, if we can prove that they do, would you put it on the agenda? And she said, okay, I will. And so we got 30,000 young people to come to Perth, Australia. No, no one, you know, Perth, Australia is very remote, right? And uh, we got 30,000 young people to rock up. John Legend very kindly agreed to fly from New York City to Perth for it. And, uh, and we hosted um, our first concert, which was called The End of Polio. And that following day, we got five heads of state, um, David Cameron of Britain, Gillard of Australia, Giliani of Pakistan, Goodluck Jonathan of Nigeria, and Stephen Harper, who at that stage was the Prime Minister of Canada, to come up and commit $118 million dollars for polio eradication, and then Bill Gates zoomed in and agreed to, to match it dollar for dollar. And so it was a, our first real push in, in public policy as global citizen. And after that, the momentum just built so rapidly. Hugh, as you prepare for the 10th anniversary festival, uh, any thoughts of those early years in New York? And I understand the first office was a broom closet in a media agency <laughs> and the notion of what you thought was possible at that point. You'd already done this big concert in Australia, but were there moments early on of, are we up for this? Can we do this? Oh yeah. Like this, this, the challenge is that America itself is such a huge idea, particularly as someone growing up in Australia, where you come from a much smaller economy, small, like we, you know, we had, 20 million people, there's 250 million people here in America, right? And so, so they, they, you know, that idea, if you can make it in America, you can make it any, anywhere. That was kind of ringing largely in my ears. I was like, okay, we've got it. We've got to pull this off because we're right in the home of the United Nations. We have to build the largest movement possible. And that was this kind of this true north for me. And it was extremely, um, extremely weighty to think that we could fail dramatically because we had to go from a startup with a zero dollar budget 
to pull off the Great Lawn of Central Park in a year, or we would have to pack up and go home. Because like the thing about pulling off a concert like Global Citizen is it's zeros and ones, it's binary, right? You don't, you either succeed or you fail. There's no middle ground. You don't kind of half succeed. You either change the world or you don't, right? And so, so we, um, we knew we had to change the world. And we were a month out um, from the concert. We were already in August and we didn't have a headliner for Central Park and we were more than a million and a half dollars short. And there were nights where I was thinking, okay, I remember our first board members here in, in America, we had this retreat in one of their houses and we were, we were contemplating the wind down strategy, you know, how we were going to have to give it all up because it wasn't going to happen. And this is why I, to this day, I do believe in miracles because no joke, I was in LA working so hard on this after we'd had this, this wind down meeting thinking it wasn't going to happen. And I got a call from Sumner Redstone who said, come to my house. I want to meet you. I've heard about your, your dream. And I drove over to his house. We sat down and he wrote a check for $1.5 million on the spot. And then literally half an hour later, Neil Young called from Hawaii saying, I heard that the Foo Fighters are in, but they're looking, they want a headliner. I'll be your first headliner. And, and and then all of a sudden it happened and we announced that 60,000 global citizens rocked up and we secured over a billion dollars in commitments that first year. And, you know, this is, this is kind of how the, the – this is why I love America, but also the power of movements in that, you know, I thought that was going to be over because we we're so tired after year one pulling that off. And then I got a phone call the next day from Stevie Wonder and he said, Hugh, I'm, I want to headline year two. And I said, Mr. Wonder, with all love – there is no year two. And he said, well, there is now. And yeah. so, um, and so that's when the movement just started to grow. And then when Chris Martin called in 2015 saying he and Coldplay wanted to help us take the movement all around the world. And then Beyonce came with us to South Africa and Jay-Z to India, you know, the momentum just, just took off. And, and now, you know, 10 years later, we've grown to become the largest movement of its kind focused on the sustainable development goals on the planet and have secured over $41 billion for the world's poor. And I think that's the difference 10 years can make. Um, but but I, I, I give the credit to our hardworking team. You know, we have so many of our team who were there from day one are with us 10 years later. Same people working so hard every single day. And you know, people stay at Global Citizen and we have this, you know, we have this this common phrase that even if you've left and you're an alma mater of the organization, you're still involved. So whether it's incredible alma mater like Justine Lucas, who was who used to work at GC and now she works with Rihanna running her foundation or, you know, Matty, who, who was with us in the very early days, was with me at Cambridge and now she's gone on to run Iconic Capitals Foundation and deploy millions of dollars for for social causes, we have just an amazing group of people who came through Global Citizen who are all changing the world in their own right. The team and Global Citizen have been incredibly successful. Are there still moments as you lead up to this next festival of, will this happen? Do you still have any more of those moments of nerves or is that a thing of the past? Oh, no, absolutely. And, and honestly, if we didn't have those moments, then I think we we wouldn't be worthy of, of, of carrying the mantle of running this organization because, you know, our, one of our, our first chairman of the board, 
Peter Murphy, he used to say to me, you never mistake a movement for an organization. These two things are very different. And if you allow it to be purely organizational and institutional and bureaucratic, you will lose the heart of what it means to drive a movement. Um, someone, someone else very wise once said to me, it's, it's messy in the garden. It's, it's very neat and tidy in the graveyard. Hmm. And I, I think it's a really good analogy that unless it's a little messy, you're not really in the garden, you're heading to the graveyard. And I, and I, I think that a good example of that right now is we're taking Global Citizen to Ghana for the first time. And there hasn't been the, the, this sort of concert in Black Star Square before. And, you know, to have incredible artists like Usher and SZA and Stormzy, you know, Stormzy literally was the headliner of Glastonbury. Usher has a huge residency in Vegas and, and SZA is one of the greatest artists of, of our generation all coming to Ghana in 28 days from now, you know, you need the best people in the world to pull that off. And I had a call with all the team this morning from security through to crisis management, through to logistics, and it's one hell of an undertaking. Um, while at the same time, we're going to have Metallica and Mariah Carey and Rosalia headlining with Jonas Brothers and Priyanka Chopra here on the Great Lawn of Central Park in New York City simultaneously. So to pull this off every year, is is itself an undertaking but i think what we've got to be the best at is keeping our true north focused on do those living in extreme poverty always benefit from our work and how and if we can make sure that when a global citizen downloads the global citizen app takes an action that action calls on a world leader to come on stage and commit billions of dollars for the eradication of poverty. And then we hold that world leader's feet to the fire to make sure they follow through on that and deploy that money for the world's poor. If we're the best at that, we will always keep having a huge impact. And that's what I think is the heart of our movement. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, I've been... I mentioned this for a reason. I've been laid off five, uh, two times in five years. And in those difficult moments, I've needed inspiration and I've looked to people who I've been blessed to meet along the journey professionally. And uh, suffice it to say that you and Global Citizen uh, helped me when you didn't even know you were helping me in terms of inspiration. And, uh, and I got to say, one of my proudest moments as a parent was in 2019, in July, my daughter just pipes up with, uh, oh, by the way, I, uh, I earned enough money to go to the Global Citizen Festival in September. So, uh, and I said, uh, you, you know, I profiled him like many years ago. And she was like, yeah, I know. And so it got in. It got in. So anyway. Uh, well, well, thank you for saying that, Bud. You are a, a true gentleman. And um, thank you for being with us since the beginning. Um, we, we, count, we count you and we count everyone that supported the movement over the years. I, I, it was funny. I, I met this gentleman recently and he said to me, Hugh, I've been to all nine global citizen festivals so far and when i meet people who've been on that journey for the long haul it means the world to me because we started with nothing we'll take nothing out of this world and so let's do everything we can to create the biggest change while we're alive hugh evans the 10th annual global citizen festival featuring metallica mariah carey and many more will be held in central park in new york on saturday september 24th 
Simultaneously, the festival is also being held for the first time in Ghana, with Usher and SZA and many others leading the concert. Before the Cheering Started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. For more information, go to our website at beforethecheeringstarted.com. This episode was created and written and produced by me. Guitar playing? That's me as well. No extra charge. The episode was edited by Lou Pellegrino. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on the journey.